0: Thanks for being part of the Becker's Cardiology Virtual Forum. I'm Molly Gamble, Vice President of Editorial of Becker's Healthcare, and today I'm joined by three cardiology and cardiothoracic leaders to hit pause, take a step back, and discuss the transformations they expect to see in their specialty over the next three years. Let me introduce our panelists and then turn it over so they can share more about themselves before we dive into our discussion. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Francisco Arabia, a physician executive of the Advanced Heart Failure Program at Banner University Medicine Heart Institute, Dr. Kamu Maganti, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Cardiac Rehabilitation, Director of Solid organ Transplant Cardiology Service from Northwestern Medicine, and Dr. Wilson Tang, a cardiologist with the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Arbia, let me turn it over to you to share a bit more about yourselves about yourself and, and your colleagues and we'll get into our
1: discussion. Well thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity to participate with such a distinguished panel. Uh, my background is actually in, uh, cardiac surgery. I've been in practice for 30 years. I have uh, been primarily involved in heart failure surgery involving uh, high-risk uh, bowel surgery, coronaries uh, Transplantation, ELVAS and Total Artificial Heart and I go around the country, training different uh, institutions on the use of these technologies. I have been at a uh, University of Arizona, Mayor Clinic, Cedar Sinai, now at Banner, which actually is a program that runs a uh, Phoenix and Tucson uh, Advanced Heart Failure Program, especially transplantation. And that's where after 30 years I have landed, I have the great opportunity to work here.
0: Dr. Arabia, thank you for being with us today. Dr. Maganti?
2: Uh, thank you again. Uh, I am so glad to be participating in the virtual cardiology forum. I'm very excited to be um, actually conducting this forum with Dr. Tang as well as Dr. Arabia. I have been at Northwestern University Bloom Cardiovascular Institute almost 17 years uh, now. Um, I have done a fellowship in imaging and I have stayed on. I do a few of different things. I direct cardiac rehab and also the solid organ cardiology service line at Northwestern University. Um, in addition, I actually do a lot of cardiac imaging, which is uh, what I love the most. Um, I do, uh, I see a lot of patients with valvular heart disease. So uh, that has been really A fantastic thing that I think we'll be discussing today. Um, Northwestern University uh, has about seven hospital systems um, within um, the city of Chicago and the suburbs, and also two outpatient centers. And it's a very busy cardiology practice and has been kind of on the advanced and innovative uh, cutting edge therapy, uh, especially utilizing AI. in the field of heart failure and transplant, both of uh, which are very dear to the panelists here, as well as the trans catheter There has been a huge commitment to quality outcomes and network integration, so that has been really challenging, as well as very heartening to see how the entire field, especially Northwestern, has been coming up. So I'm very excited excited to be part of this forum today. Thank you.
0: We're very happy to have you with us, Dr. McGonagherty. Thank you. And finally, Dr. Tang.
3: Thank you very much for the opportunity to participate uh, in this uh, really innovative uh, symposium. Um, My name is Wilson Tang. I'm a heart failure transplant cardiologist. Uh, I've been practicing for uh, 20 years now. Um, uh, Actually, uh, throughout all this time at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic is uh, a very big system uh, with about 6,000 beds system wide. Uh, the main campus in Northeast Ohio, which is where I practice all this time, is about 1,300 beds. Uh, we have a total of uh, 4,500 uh, physicians and scientists and uh, more than uh, 2,500 uh, advanced practitioner providers. So, very big system. And obviously, we are uh, I had a really active heart failure transplant program as well. Uh, we just celebrated our 2000 uh, transplant, a heart transplant. Uh, and my area of it, uh, clinical and research interest is really on cardio renal physiology as well as uh, uh, taking care of specific cardiomyopathy, either genetic or acquired. And uh, my research is on gut microbiome and metabolomics.
0: Dr. Tang, I'm really looking forward to this. I think, you know, three years is just enough time where it's almost, it's quite tricky to make predictions, but it's also a lot easier than 10 years or 15, 20 years. So I think today we're going to hear a lot of different perspectives and your subspecialties also related to prevention, treatment, um, research. So thank you in advance. Dr. Tang, I'm going to stay with you. I had asked each of you to come prepared with about two to three transformations you expect to see in the specialty by 2023. I'm gonna open the floor up and Dr. Tang, I'd like you to share yours first, uh, your first one. And then I welcome your colleagues to really interject and weigh in and react um, and likewise as we go around here in this discussion. So Dr. Tang, do you mind walking us through the first transformation you think is most likely over the next few years?
3: Certainly, I think this is already happening uh, with the uh, COVID era um, is really something that is remarkable in terms of the technological advances, but also the acceleration in adoption is really on digital and telehealth. Um, it's really both at the level of uh, this uh, patient empowerment as well as patient-centric uh, generation of data that is both extensive and also in many ways, very unique uh, for each individual. The challenge that we have been facing, of course, is the infrastructure as well as the adoption of these new technologies. And of course, with COVID, we ended up forced to actually get into uh, the adoption of telehealth, uh, which is really, you know, what we are doing right now (laughs) uh, between uh, for everyday patient care but also with the advance of uh, a significant acceleration of implanted and wearable sensors. And those sensors uh, from an experimental point of view uh, has been compounded with a large amount of data generation that actually allows us to visualize both physiology as well as in many ways behavioral uh, uh, changes uh, for each individual. And uh, the, the key challenge, obviously, which I think over time will, we'll, in, the, in the next three years, with both industry as well as uh, systems development, would allow us to go back into this closed loop management strategies. So meaning that patients are able to then understand what are the things that uh, they could actually uh, uh, react to. And I think this is, this is the, the ultimate leap from a uh, a physician or clinician-centric advisory role or, or management role to really a partnership between patients, their caregivers, as well as uh, uh, the, the team that actually take care of them.
0: And so wearables have been out for quite some time now, but I mean, even just this in recent weeks, we've seen Amazon is now releasing one that integrates immediately with the Cerner EHR. So Dr. Tang, are you saying that the the wearables and where those... Technologies are headed is going to be much more sophisticated.
3: I think it's more like learning what to act on and what don't we act on, as well as how to uh, uh, make sure that we manage the data to the point that it's not a you know a a synchronous communication. Meaning, in many ways, the more data we got doesn't mean it's better. In fact, it's really data that allows us to actually manage patients in a better manner or identify problems early on. We have throughout decades ways from, from implanted devices and, and various you know uh, inter interfaces that as simple as a telephone uh, that allows us to communicate that the issue that comes along is really the, the effector on um, you know how are we going to react or respond to certain patterns and that part actually will, uh, that the modern you know, analytical and predictive analytics has really paved the way. And I think uh, in, in places like Northwestern, you know, like there has been a lot of development as how it integrates with EMR, the EMR derived uh, uh, information. And I think this algorithm integration is probably going to the biggest advance that we were going to see.
2: So Dr. Tang, what do you think about the uh, left atrial sensor devices? Where do you think we stand?
3: Yeah, Uh, uh, actually, uh, this has been a very interesting development. I'm sure uh, Dr. Arabia has put a lot of LA uh, uh, wires uh, when he was doing surgery. So obviously, this is like the gold standard of actually assessing pressures. And we have had implantable devices in the left atrium. Uh, Turns out, actually, the, uh, the right atrium or the pulmonary artery devices are actually more than enough in actually characterizing and in a champion study, which is the CardioMEMS device, which actually has its origin at the Cleveland Clinic, in fact, you know, actually helped develop it very early on. Uh, we actually found that by guiding the pulmonary artery pressures, actually reduce hospitalizations for very advanced patients with heart failure and several different types of these devices are actually under development, as well as under, you know, actually um, uh, clinical use in, particularly CaliMEMs, it's still very invasive, but there's a lot of different ways to try and see if we could uh, get similar data to actually integrate it with our care.
0: Dr. Tang, thank you. You Certainly kicked us off with a lot of food for thought. So expanded use of telehealth, digital health, implanted devices, wearables, and the data continuum becoming a lot richer, which like you said, closing the loop of healthcare, and it's not just gonna be more data, but better data to act on. Okay, thank you. Dr. Arabia, let me check in with you. I, I would love to hear your transformation uh, that you see is most likely over the next three years.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, that was a very interesting comment, Dr. Tan, on the uh, digital information that is being transferred and what's yet to come. And I'm speaking from someone who last year didn't want to have too many virtual meetings to one now who loved the virtual meetings and and how incredible uh, step forward that is. So along those lines comes um, at least one that I see coming in the next three years that I'm I'm hoping uh, that will move forward. And that is in left ventricular assist devices, which are the pumps that we put in in patients for uh, who have advanced heart failure, who either are waiting for a heart transplant, but more likely now as what we call destination therapy uh, on a permanent basis. And one of the drawbacks of that technology is the drive line that comes out of the body, connects the pump to the computer and power supply. And that has, there's no doubt that that makes it difficult for the patient. So multiple companies, both in Europe and in the United States and in Australia, have been working on how to transmit information digitally inside, our communicate with the pump, and at the same time power the provide the energy supply without a cable. And there are systems that have been used for several years now, close to a decade two, decade and a half, of transmitting the energy by radio waves from the outside to the inside, uh, pretty much like Wi-Fi. And at least it's seen, they have made significant progress that it appears that in the next three years, we're gonna have pumps that can be implanted and they don't have a drive line coming out Uh, through the skin, which is, it will be a major step forward, not only in the technology, but in the quality of life of the patients who receive these uh, pumps. And believe me, I I can't wait for that day because those pumps at that level will start competing with heart transplantation. That still is the gold standard. And that brings me to my second topic of where are we going to be in three years with artificial hearts which is another attempt at solving the problem of advanced heart failure Uh, and right now we have one in the United States that has been around for decades but in three years from now we're going to have at least two more so we have a total of three different artificial hearts and and the third one actually has the potential to be also without a driveline the communication and the power supply and the energy supply is all transmitted through the skin and there are no nothing penetrating the skin. That would be, again, an incredible advancement towards uh, less infections, less complications, and a better quality of life. So that's two. And the last one is, is one that we have been working for decades, and that is using hearts from animals, especially pigs, into humans. It's been a challenge. It's been a challenge to for the uh, medical community uh, and for uh, science to be able to do that. It sounds very simple, but it's extremely difficult. But it appears that in the next three years we will be able to have longer survival in animals with transplants from one animal to another, and that will get get us closer eventually to be able to use those hearts in human and be able to have other therapies that are very effective for advanced heart failure other than human heart transplantation, which is still uh, very limited. So those are three potential areas. The first two are more realistic in the next three years than the last one, but uh, we will get closer to it.
0: I like your optimism with the last one. I think it's just even, it's interesting to discuss and worth mentioning for sure. But you know, going back to the, the driveline um, with the implant, I, I understand why being tethered to a device like that would be burdensome for patients. And you mentioned the rate of infection, but can you, for, for someone who, I'm unfamiliar with this and what that looks like and how that feels as a patient, can you just tell me more about what that experience is like in current day? just so I can understand more of why this would be such a huge improvement when it's almost yeah, like a yeah. Wi-Fi signal?
1: Of course, you know, You uh, imagine having something attached to you that you cannot remove. It pierces the skin, it irritates the skin, it's about a centimeter in diameter. Uh, the, you can never keep the area clean completely, so it, it has the potential to get infected, it, move, it can move in and out of the body bring infection inside the body. It can sometimes be very painful, tender. Uh, and it's, it's always a challenge and you always have to be changing the dressing of the dry line, securing the dry line that it doesn't move. This newer technology will eliminate that. And right now it is to have an antenna inside the body and an antenna outside the body and communicating that, that way. But the future is, this can be like Wi-Fi, like you have the antenna somewhere in your home and you can walk around your home or go even outside and the energy and the information is transmitted by radio waves. So there is a potential for that. Uh, we, we don't have the science, the technology yet, but the science is there. You know, one of the limitations currently that most patients complain is that they cannot go swimming because <laughs> of the driving. I would add that um,
3: on top of which, there are much lower profile insertion techniques. So it is very likely that within three years, we will see miniature devices that has got adequate uh, uh, rotation, meaning the amount of cardiac output that's generated uh, being implanted percutaneously. Uh, so that that in itself is a huge, uh, you know, uh, advantage because then you don't need to uh, perform open heart surgeries on many of these patients. And uh, the technology advance is really coming down to uh, really understanding what is the essential components that is needed to be implanted and to where is safe to implant. So those are actually in um, active clinical investigations. And, then and, and, and the xenotransplant part, actually, we, 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 we had it for a long time. The, the science has been very, very uh, uh, much more enlightening now. We know not only the infection or the, the, the things that potentially animals have that we don't. We also understand the different uh, molecules that uh, the animal uh, heart may have that we uh, uh, have immune responses to. So by actually editing some of these out of the picture or even having mechanisms to really silence them really allows us to create models that potentially have truly make this a reality. So it is actually very promising as well.
1: Yeah, that's correct. The, the technology is evolving and the understanding that we can modify the donor heart in the animal so the human will have less of a reaction. It will be uh, less immune reactive uh, and have better characteristics. So in three years, we'll be closer. We'll be there, but it is a step forward.
2: I also think it is very exciting to see all the advances we have made in heart failure therapy that actually seem to help a lot of these patients as well. Um, you know, the time, like using BADS as bridge to transplant, the time have increased. And maybe, like Dr. Erbier had said, there will be a time when these devices might be all that the patients would ever need rather than a transplant per se. Um, and it's very exciting to see medications such as, you know, being studied and also some of the antigens, the... Um, a carbohydrate antigen 125, for example, guiding heart failure therapy. So we can actually help patients much earlier in the course of the disease. And we are also using a lot of cardiovascular genetics to help us figure out who amongst our populations will actually end on needing heart failure therapy, advanced heart failure therapy. And I'm sure Dr. Erbier and Dr. Tank are also thinking along CRT devices. Um, And I'm sure you have implanted quite a few and you work with a lot of patients who have CRT and there are uh, advances being made even in that area. Uh, So from the imaging perspective, I can tell you just seeing CRT devices from many years ago to now, the amount of synchronization is amazing.
3: Yeah, it is definitely true. Uh, About 12 years ago, we actually uh, uh, publish our experience of CRT non-responders. And uh, those days, we are really at the very beginning of CRT implant and we actually see in the clinical setting, a lot of leads all in the wrong, uh, like wrong place. So we have very little understanding of how to best do it. Uh, nowadays, uh, last week, I just have a patient you know, we were able to spot on directly at the place where we think this is the best really at the bundle. so. I think the technique, the tools, and overall uh, approach, and the understanding of just like the surgical advances, the medical adjunctive and imaging-guiding, you know, strategies to actually help, you know, make the technology the best that it is is basically what we have been witnessing just within the last decade.
2: What do you both feel about the newer? Uh Um, cardiac modulation and the beta receptor uh, stimulation, um, or even the vagal nerve stimulation for the heart failure therapies. It's also very interesting when I read about these.
3: Yes, definitely. Um, In fact, neuromodulation is in my backup kind of the next few years, what we're gonna see. Of course, we have the rise and fall of the renal denervation story. obviously the human body evolved uh, a lot more smarter than all of us have imagined. So we are still learning a lot, but the cardiac contractile modulation device, which recently did get FDA approved, certainly seem to suggest that in a a cohort of patients that have cardiac dysfunction, certainly seem to have some improvement, Uh, but uh, we really need to continue to learn as to what it is clearly it affects something biologically that we still don't understand, and so I think one thing that at least the the, the last six months of uh of what we are experienced also taught us that uh, science really is a very big part of the advance and I think many times when we had almost like reverse engineering, we had these treatments, whether it's drugs or devices that actually showed us some benefit, and we don't understand them. Really opens the door to really, you know, continue to investigate why do they work the way they work. But uh, certainly, from some of the data that has been shown, uh, for some patients, it does uh, improve uh, significantly. Yeah, too.
1: technologies in science that may help us with understanding the modulation, understanding how to better understand this system, and that is. In the areas of artificial intelligence and quantum computers that might bring us solutions that we have never even considered,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: so so that is extremely interested. And in three years, th- that other technology might help us. And the tools I
3: that think- yeah, and the tools that's being used. I mean, talking back at Reno, the innovation, the first generation is very uh, very crude, and now the the, the, the catheters and all that actually has improvement. And we are really looking forward to those data again.
2: Very exciting stuff ahead, I
0: think. Mm-hmm. Again, imaging
3: too. Imaging, a yeah. lot of insights in molecular imaging.
0: Yeah. Dr. Maganta, can I ask you to expand a little bit about cardiac modulation and just why um, you would like to see some promising developments on that front and what that would mean for care and outcomes in patients?
2: So there have been a lot of studies that are slowly coming up or uh, coming out about neuromodulation, uh, especially um, focused on beta receptor stimulation, focused on vagal nerve stimulation, and most of these seem to improve the cardiovascular outcomes in patients with heart failure, which is why this is so exciting. The quality of life and six minute walk tests seem to improve, but again, these are select number of patients. And to identify those responders is now the biggest challenge. And I think Dr. Tang can answer for this because some of his research is in that area. Uh, Once we get to the point, like what Dr. Erbia was mentioning about utilizing the tools that we have, especially the computational stuff with all of the uh, feedings that we, with all the feeds that we get from looking at these patients, maybe it'll help us identify the responders much more quickly. But I think this is where over the next three years, we'll be making a lot of progress, I feel.
3: I think a big part of it is that we, uh, there's always a sweet spot in terms of the subgroup of patients that are particularly benefiting. And I think uh, just like in the field in medicine, really finding the stratified medicine approach, which is to find a group of people that respond to us is kind of uh, what our oncology colleagues have done quite well in terms of finding literally quote unquote cures for specific cancers. So in in, in cardiology, we also have started uh, to get into this, this area. I mean, amyloid is a great uh, example where a subtype of amyloid now has one drug that's approved and multiple drugs that are really gene silencing therapy to really specific target the pathways that lead to the progression of the amyloid heart disease, which is devastating, of course. And so uh, I certainly would see some uh, advances within the next few years. Uh, We already have multiple studies on rare diseases, but also uh, the overarching immune responses uh, as Outlined by the COVID era, is really uh, again accelerated our understanding of how our own immune system affects different facets of cardiovascular health and disease.
2: In the field of amyloid cardiomyopathy, we have seen tremendous advances with the uh, tafamidis that was approved. We are looking at newer ways of imaging these patients, identifying them earlier on. And these were the patients that we couldn't really help ten years ago. Um, so they are newer drugs that are being studied. So just as uh, there are advances in the uh, invasive field, there is a lot of advances in the field of medical therapy, early diagnostic technologies, as well as genetic uh, therapies that are being explored. So. I think there's going to be an explosion of all of this over the next three years.
1: And that's where the new computing technology might be extremely helpful, to help us understand uh, these systems that are so complex. And I'm optimistic that quantum computing computers will be able to cause new solutions or make us see things in different ways that we couldn't see them before.
0: Specific to cardiac myopathy, is that what you mentioned, Dr. Maganti? So you're saying that technology advancements and more sophisticated uh, options there would help you better distinguish whether that's genetic or developed? Is is that what I'm hearing?
2: Yes, yes. So there are certain patterns on certain imaging technologies that we utilize that elude us to certain types of cardiomyopathies. And uh, these are getting more and more recognized. Um, And in addition to that, uh, working closely with cardiovascular genetics, people we have identified, or at least uh, come up with algorithms to identify patients with early cardiomyopathies, um, especially patients who have a lot of sudden cardiac death in their families. Um, So there are certain patterns on MRI scans, for example certain patterns on echoes, for example. These are all clues that we could utilize. And in addition, we are using a lot of AI-guided imaging help, and I think that actually is very interesting to explore. At our institution, uh, we are utilizing AI to uh, 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 to help just get echoes, even in our COVID patients currently, so to minimize exposure, to the sonographers, um, We also have found that the uh, machine uh, that we are utilizing can get adequate images uh, that humans can get. Um, there is a lot of AI-based imaging for CT scans, coronary CT angiograms, for example. And also the advances in the computing has made the spatial resolution so much better compared to even a few years ago which helps us identify uh, patients with um, diagnoses much earlier in the course of the disease. Um, Newer algorithms that we are coming up with can help us figure out valular pathologies much earlier. And um, the most exciting thing that I've also noticed is being able to utilize FFR in coronary CT angiograms just to identify Low limiting stenosis much earlier than going to the invasive lab. So, you can get a non invasive angiogram along with an FFR, which will change how we actually look at our patients with CAD. So, um, I think there is a lot of technological advances, even in the imaging areas, that are helping us tremendously.
3: Yeah, the the biggest challenge is uh, just like the wearables uh, is uh, there's always a promise that some of these are helpful, and the rigor of trying to you know demonstrate that there's incremental benefit is certainly needed. And I think uh, with most systems having uh, electronic health records now, um, and some you know. Uh, countries have actually adopted these embedded uh, clinical, pragmatic clinical research, uh, or comparative effectiveness research uh, that potentially can demonstrate this. So I think this is something that we're going to see a lot more is how do we leverage existing infrastructure to enable us to better understand how these technologies are going to be beneficial. What is actually works better, what doesn't how are we going to uh, leverage some of these in the way, uh, really, you know, as what they intended to, but also out of the box? And I think what, what we will see a lot is a lot of competing technologies. Uh, but then there's a lot more work to be done in terms of um, demonstrating, is uh, validating, is uh, accuracy but also to demonstrate this uh, incremental value. So that the value of the technological advance uh, really can outweigh the cost.
2: I think that is such a great point, but I also think some of these variables where if we can actually look at the burden of paper, for example, we are utilizing it already. Uh-huh. Um, similarly, trying to read uh, how the QT interval changes in people who have Mm -hmm. uh, a high incidence of sudden cardiac death, uh, I think that's also an exciting area. And um, I know that our center has been looking into stuff like this, and I'm sure uh, it's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing on the EP front, and I'm sure you both can answer to this as well, with the new modalities of ablation where they're using pulse field ablation as opposed to cryo or RFA, that's another area that seems to be very exciting. Lots of papers that have come out mm-hmm. because this decreases the amount of downstream complications mm-hmm. um, and also increasing uh, how well patients do following an ablation. And also on um, the pacing world, the matra, for example, and also the very small leadless uh, pacemaking devices, as well as subcutaneous defibrillators. I think lots of technological advances. But again, we have to we have to really see carefully how much they truly help our patients.
1: You know, there is a you referred to the explosion of technologies and understanding. I think it's starting. I think we are. We see so many things coming up in the cardiovascular field, uh, in the EP lab, in valves, the procedures, doing the valve, putting the valve in, in the valve, exchanging. Uh, that we are at an ex- uh, an, a time that all this is coming. But you're absolutely right when you mentioned we have to be careful evaluating this to make sure that what we ad- accept and adapt to is actually Helping the patients.
2: It's crucial. I I'm sure we all have examples of patients sending us everything they sense as AFib through <laughs> my chart. Yeah. And uh, you're like, Oh, that's a PAC and not AFib truly. But still I think uh, it's good and we have now truly partnership with patients rather than physician centric models, which is which is good and bad.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think part of it is that you know we 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 not only double triple but like you know exponentially increase both the data as well as the the, the you know the uncertainty of what we are looking at. And I think that's where um, technology also should help us, you know, lessen these uh, you know these uh, these variable. Um, should I say input? But at the same time, I would I would also say some fundamental uh, areas uh, as we continue to you know the 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 societies have been facing with a lot of health and disease burden, uh, there will likely be more and more emphasis uh, that uh, early or upfront identification will be important. So, and that's why I'm going back to the wearable stuff. If we identify either from an electronic health record or from the wearables that somebody is actually having some health issues, uh, whether it's, you know, genetics from a consumer level or, you know, or, or some wearable that shows some physiological changes, those are really, you know, opportunities for intervention rather than, you know, uh, seeing myself and Dr. Arabia in terms of getting, you know, heart replacements or transplants, you know, early prevention, uh, dietary, lifestyle modification—those are things that are still, you know, trying and true. But technology can also help. So,
2: uh, coming to what Dr. Arabia has mentioned, there has been um, a lot of uh, advances in the field of cardiovascular uh, invasive lab, especially when it comes to valvular heart disease. Um, so in addition to aortic valve replacement, we are doing a lot of transmitral and transtricuspid, which are really much more difficult to do, the transtricuspid especially. And I already have seen just within the past five years the advances in the technology that are helping our patients One of the ways that we are up to date so much is because without imaging, none of these device implantations uh, can happen. So we are at the forefront along with the VAG team, typically includes CT surgery, as well as the invasive cardiology team and imaging team to uh, get these devices implanted. Um, I think the next area where I think a lot of stuff we'll be seeing will be in the trans tricuspid. Would you both agree?
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. In the post-transplant patients, several years later, that develop this tricuspid insufficiency, you want to try everything you can not to operate on them. <laughs> uh, well, yeah.
3: we we may have less of them because we are biopsying them less too, and yeah, that's yeah. another another innovation that. Uh, we are doing the same genetic uh, technologies that we do for looking at uh, uh, fetal anomalies called like uh, cell-free DNA technologies. we uh, we currently actually using blood testing uh, already, you know, after six months uh, for those who are not very uh, rejecting a lot to actually use uh, a blood test to actually identify whether there's any activation of immune function. Uh, So in the past, we would biopsy patients all the way up to like five years. Now we we basically, within six months to a year, we actually could monitor them by various non-invasive means. And I think this technology is actually going further. And also with imaging. I mean, we used to do annual, uh, you know, corner evaluation. And now we're using both PET scans or MRIs to actually follow them. So again, a lot of the, you know, conversion into less invasive uh, modality allow us to not only look at the things we have traditionally interested in, but also novel insights that potentially, uh, that we could catch early to actually change our management.
1: Yeah, you know, all this technology has been good in that it helped us to new solutions, like the ability to do less heart biopsies in the transplant,
0: which is an
1: incredible step forward. But where technology has been slow, either by, because of understanding or Different type of motivation is in prevention. What things can we do early on when we identify a patient to make sure that we do not need a heart transplant, that we do not need an intervention in the in the future? We can identify the disease process, but modulating the the disease process has been a challenge, and maybe technology will help us.
3: So, so some of these are actually in development. So. Targeting rare diseases like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they are small molecules that directly act on uh, the mechanisms to try and reduce the progression. Uh, There are specific either gene or small molecule therapies that are in early phase development, just like cancer therapy to really target at risk patients. And I think there are more and more studies going on, crossing between the like the minimally or asymptomatic kind of what we call stage B uh, uh, patients be, to prevent them from developing heart failure. And uh, uh, one of the approved studies, uh, approved drug for heart failure really comes down from uh, 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 glucose lowering drug uh, that actually is in some ways a preventive uh, you know, uh, approach. And so in some ways repurposing some of these drugs to really try and prevent cardiovascular disease is really the, the frontier. That's not very long ago because these drugs are already available. We are kind of identifying their unique properties to really identify their earlier use to prevent them from developing you know, overt disease. Uh,
2: coming up with the new guidelines of hypertension that allow us to control the blood pressure really a little bit more rigidly along with the LT2 receptor blockers, which are fantastic uh, at helping with the diabetic cardiomyopathy and improving cardiovascular outcomes, um, especially in the heart failure world is phenomenal. And I look forward to seeing both preventive strategies as well as therapeutic strategies, um, mostly uh, with the aid of science over the next three years.
0: I think just a tremendous mix of you you all kind of showed how this specialty is interconnected Um, you brought up different developments in prevention treatment research of course and then also i think some were short term some more long term in the span of three years perhaps even as dr arabia said a little bit past three years but it's always good to look forward here so my heartfelt thanks it's really an honor to stand among giants like yourselves in your field uh, from cleveland clinic banner and Northwestern. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and having a chance to check in with your colleagues and see what they're seeing and how their thoughts might differ. Uh, and to attendees who joined us today, thank you so much for joining Dr. Tang, Dr. Arabia, and Dr. Maganti and myself. Hope you enjoyed this session. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.